Well, Christmas is here. You know, we know that. We keep talking about Christmas. And I have noticed something. Every show I think I've seen, including commercials, it seems, these days, during the Christmas season, are asking the question of, why do we do this? What is, what is this thing all about? And invariably, they offer, well, I would say variations of three answers, which is, it, this is about family, it's about giving, and it's about Santa Claus. Now, Santa Claus, to me, is, is a jolly fellow. He's an interesting guy. I mean, you talk about animal trainers. I've never seen anybody make an animal fly, and, and he does that with the reindeer, right? And he's a pretty just person. I mean, he gives good gifts to the good kids and stuffs coal down the stockings of the bad children. But the problem is, is that Santa can never bring life. He can't really build and form relationships between people. He doesn't give us the gifts and abilities that we have. He didn't die for us. He didn't come back to life. And he's not going to make it possible for us to live with him forever in a perfect place called heaven. Santa has become in some ways sort of an American version of a Greek or Roman God. But there's really only one God, and his name is Jesus Christ. And next to Jesus, Santa is nothing. Your trust in Santa will not bring you back from the grave. And so Jesus has so much more for us to believe in and to get excited about, especially during the Christmas season. People will talk about Santa, they'll talk about football games, they'll talk about family, they'll talk about gifts. But we should talk about Jesus. I mean, Christmas was named after Christ, right? And so we talk about Jesus, and I encourage you to talk about Jesus to those that are in your family and your friends during the Christmas season. But, of course, you don't push that on them. You know, you're not rude, but it's just something that you would talk about like you would talk about other topics. Peter talked about it, I think, all the time. Actually, it got him in a little bit of trouble. And that's why we're in this series on 1 Peter called Displaced, because the early Christians, as they took their, their stand for Christ, they were actually displaced from home, from family, from friends, from jobs. And, of course, we're all spiritually displaced from heaven. And so Peter's talking about how we should talk to people about Jesus. I mean, that's the biggest thing he's, he's about is telling people about this salvation. And it's interesting because there's this gold nugget right smack in the middle of his book that he talks about how do you share the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ with other people. And it's in the context of suffering. So when you're going through suffering, how do you share Christ? But in principle, it's the same thing. Whether you're suffering or not, you share Christ the same way. And it's interesting how often suffering is part of sharing your faith. Either you're suffering or somebody else is suffering, and the message comes up. And so we're going to talk about how to share your faith during suffering today, but again, this applies in all opportunities that you might have. And as we do that, we'll look at First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. Let me read it. Peter says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. 
So the first thing I think we need to do is be good. He tells us to be good, and he asks this question. If we're good, who's going to be against us? And what's the answer? Yeah, he expects us to say no one. Now, it's a rhetorical statement, so he's kind of leading us on. I want you to say no one here. So he gives, sets it up for us. We say no one. And then we say, well, that's not true, not all the time, but it's a principle. And the principle is, generally speaking, if you're nice to people, they'll be nice back to you, right? Abraham Lincoln said, if I make my, friend, my, en- if I make my enemies my friends, I no longer have any enemies. And that really should be our goal as followers of Christ is to make our enemies our friends. We don't want to make enemies. We want to make friends. And we do that by loving people and caring for them, supporting them, and, and, and really being true and loyal in our relationship with them. So that's, that's what we want to do. Doesn't that make sense? So that's the goal of what we're all about. Um, at times, that doesn't work, though. You know, there will be people that get upset. Um, there will be times when we offend people. Now, I have met some people who think that because they know that Christians are supposed to suffer, that it's their goal to be as offensive as they can be. And uh, a lot of times I wish I wouldn't tell people that they claim to be Christians, right? You know? But there are people out there like that. And then there are others of us that feel like, oh, I'm really insecure about my faith. You know, it's almost an inferiority complex because we feel like if I tell somebody I know Christ, they'll look down on me. They'll think I'm strange or something or they won't talk to me anymore. Um, and that could happen. But... What's really interesting, I've been reading these articles lately and um, surveys and things, and one of the things that repeatedly they're finding is that people like people that are good to them, and oftentimes they associate that with Christians. Now, of course, there are hypocritical Christians, but a lot of times employers will say, well, the guys that say they were Christians were my best employers, my best employees. And that should be the case, shouldn't it? Of course, it isn't always but we'd like to hope that is. So if people know that we're Christians, that's not necessarily a bad thing. We should be able to share our faith with people. But nevertheless, there are times where he says that it it gets bad. And he says, you're not supposed to fear. Remember Franklin Roosevelt? Franklin Roosevelt during World War II, he said, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. But Isaiah, centuries earlier, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13, he said, the only one to fear is God. If the biggest kid on the schoolyard is your best friend, you don't have much to worry about. And that's the case with our God. The worst anybody can do to us is kill us, and then we'll go to be with Jesus. I can think of an example of a guy like this when I was growing up. Maybe you had a person like this in your life. My, my friend's name was Pat. We met playing football got in trouble. We were playing football, tackle football in elementary school, and we're told not to, to cease and desist. So we started playing tackle football in a, uh, in a park near our home. And we did that for years, and we had a lot of fun. But as we grew up, not everybody kept playing, but we kept playing football together. Uh, in my senior year, I was a center, and he was a guard. He was built like a, like a block of ice. And, and he was a linebacker, too. And when he would tackle people, it hurt. In fact, he actually, when he was a junior, he knocked one of our seniors out for the season. So he was just this monster when he played football. Well, when he wasn't playing football, he would talk about his faith in Christ. And he was the most gentle and kind person I knew. Now, hypothetically, this is the kind of situation. If a kid, the the class underdog, is walking, you know, out of the lunch line with his tray of food and somebody trips him and knocks him down, Pat would be the first to come over, help him up, and buy him a new lunch. 
everybody seemed to like Pat. And the girls all had crushes on him. But predictably, there were those that were jealous of Pat and those that didn't like the way that his behavior showed their bad behavior by contrast. And even they started talking behind his back and calling him Pope Pat. How do I know this? I was one of them, I'm ashamed to say. I used to talk behind his back. I was jealous of him, and I'd get angry at him. And we would have arguments. And one time, we almost got in a fist fight, and guess what happened? He turned and walked away. That made, don't say, come on. (laughs) Did you guys hear that? Marnie jumps in and says, good for him. I'm bearing my soul here, Marnie. This is not an easy moment. Um, Okay, that's all right. It's all right. I'll be, I'll be okay. Um, so, so, so here we go. And so I'm having this hard time with this guy, and, and I'm really struggling. You know? But it's because of his life that, that things begin to turn around for me because I was more verbal, so I could out-argue him or talk over him probably. But I could not outlive the man. And it's because of his life, largely, that I turned my life around, that I committed my life to Christ. He is still... A close friend today. Pat retired as a sergeant for the police department in my hometown. I asked him once if he ever shared Christ with the people that he arrested. He said, you know, it's a funny thing. I did. He said, one time this guy said to me, he said, you're the nicest cop who ever arrested me. <laughs> we still keep in touch. We talk to each other, write each other, you know, you know, text each other every once in a while. In October, I got a gift card from him thanking me for my year, years of service as a pastor. That's the kind of friend he is. That's being good. And when, when you're good like that, you know, who, who can dispute that kind of person? That makes Jesus Christ attractive. And that's what our lives should be like. Um, but as we said, it can get hard. And I don't, I don't want to play down the suffering side because suffering can be really difficult. Peter, especially in his youth, as we see in the Gospels, could be rather annoying at times. But overall, he was a winsome guy, and people seemed to like Peter. And yet Peter got in all sorts of trouble at the end because of his faith. Last week, we showed you a glamour shot of Peter when he was in his prime young. This week, we want to show you. Do we have that picture up, Mitch? We're going to show you a picture of him that we don't know for sure that this is how he looks, but this is generally a picture of what they think Peter looked like near the end of his life. With the white beard and the white hair, he aged perceptibly, and a lot of it was because of a lot of the persecution that he went through. Um... Peter knew what it was like to suffer. I was reading, the tradition is, and this seems to be pretty well accepted from the different sources and the many things that were written about Peter, that Peter was chained uh, to a post, standing, he was chained to a post in a filthy dungeon for nine months, then crucified at 60 years of age. So Peter knows what he's saying when we get down to, verse 17, and he says, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If you're going to suffer, you suffer for doing good, and God honors that. And that's very much what, what Jesus is talking about. God is going to take care of us, and he's going to honor us, and as we saw last week, we'll even get rewards for doing what God would call us to do. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you, um, because of my name. Rejoice and be glad. Oh, persecuted, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
we'll suffer, but, but we'll be honored for it, and we'll be rewarded for it if we hang in there. You know, I've also, I've also noticed that when we suffer, people are often more interested in Jesus Christ. You ever notice that? When my son was sick with cancer in the hospital, we had more people come to want to talk to us about Jesus than any time ever in my life. They wanted to talk to us. They wanted to know how we were getting through this thing. So be good. That's kind of the foundation. But it goes beyond that. We also need to be holy. He says we need to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. To set him apart is the same word that we use to be sanctified. To be that It's the same picture of being holy. Uh, we need to be in relationship with Jesus. That's the starting point. So what we've talked about so far is outwardly. Outwardly, we need to do all this stuff. But the more important thing is what we do inwardly. Inwardly in our hearts, we need to be right with God. That's more important. I, that's one of the reasons I really like our, our mission statement where we say our love for God leads us to love our world. It's because of our love for God that we will love our world. That's where our source of strength comes from. That's like the big tree with its roots. We live out in the country, and sometimes, especially at night, you'll hear a big crash, and the next morning you'll see this majestic tree that's all laid out. Because its roots, especially with the drought, were not deep enough, and it collapses. If our roots aren't deep, if we don't have a deep, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, if we aren't spending time praying and talking to him daily, reading the scriptures, we won't have that strength when those hard times come. That was one of the other problems I had with my buddy Pat, is I was trying to live a good Christian life, but I was doing it without Jesus, so I didn't have his forgiveness I didn't have his strength. I didn't have his guidance. Didn't have his direction in my life. And so we need that in our lives. And the next thing he talks about is we need to be prepared. Because people will come. You know, they'll come to us and they'll say they, that they want to talk about what we believe in. Sometimes because they want to tell us what they believe in. More often it's because they see something different in us. You know, you, you don't use the same language, the dirty language, the off-color jokes, the racist jokes. You don't do that at work like everybody else. Um, you don't gossip about other people. You're honest. You're going through a hard time, and how do you deal with that? Where does that hope come from? And when those times will come, if we're being good and we're following Christ, those times inevitably will come. Do you have the answers for their questions? Are you prepared? At the very least, we should be able to tell them the, you know, the, what we call the ABCs. You, know, you should be able to say that, tell them that they need to admit that they're a sinner in need of salvation. They need to believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And they need to choose to follow Christ and put their faith in him alone. And if you're here for a first time and you haven't done that or even been here for a while, I invite you to come and talk to us about that uh, later today. But you should be able to explain that. And that's why it's important that you go through things like we have at the church, we have the, um, the walk to help give you some basic ideas, you know, a basic understanding of your faith. You need to understand these things and grow in our relationship so that we can answer people. Your answer shouldn't be just what I say, but they should come from the Bible. And if you don't have the answers, that's okay. Go research them. Come and talk with us, and we'll help you find them. And that's an opportunity for you to grow in your relationship with the Lord. You can tell people, I don't know, but I'll find out. So we need to be consistently preparing us to be able to explain what we really believe in. And then um, the last thing that he says is not only should we be prepared for these things, but we should also, we should be good, we should be 
wholly prepared, but we also should be, battle, be gentle and respectful. Now, the opposite of being gentle and respectful is being rude, disrespectful, forceful. And we don't like, does anybody like somebody who treats them that way? That's not what usually works. Uh, here's an interesting story. In 1964, we had another election year. And some of you maybe remember that. Others are thinking, 1964, when was that? You know, I mean, that's way back. Well, 1964, we had another election year. And the Republican National Party uh, nominated Senator Barry S. Goldwater of Arizona to run for office. Now, Goldwater was a conservative, and his message was that he uh, wanted there to be less government, and he wanted there to be more international protection. Fairly simple message. Not everybody's going to agree with it, but when he gave the message, it never seemed to come out right. In fact, political experts believe that his acceptance speech at the Republican National Conference cost him the election. He came over as angry, combative, and even unstable. And of course, the Democratic you know, candidates you know, stuff just had a heyday with him going over what he said, and he lost the election. Now, here's the irony of the whole thing. A month or so, a couple months earlier, another man spoke on his behalf. He was a middle-aged, unemployed actor. And he gave a speech on live television, and he said the same thing, and the response was the exact opposite. He just revved everybody up. His name was, anybody know? Ronald Reagan. And what Reagan did in that speech is he gave the same message, but he did it with folksy, you know, warm uh, reasoning, and injected a little bit of humor, and he did something that nobody remembered a candidate or any speaker had ever done before. He talked about his opponents as our friends, the Democrats. Our friends, the Democrats. And even the Democrats perked up and listened. And when he was done with that speech because of this new medium called television, all, this all people were flooding in letters and things from all over the nation telling him he should run for office. Uh, it's been considered one of the most powerful speeches ever given because it was like going viral today, you know, on, on, you know, online. And it basically launched his political career. It wasn't something he was even seeking. It just happened because of one speech and because he said some hard things in a nice way. That's so much of what it's like for us in our walk with Christ is to say the tough things in a nice way, to be able to tell, speak the truth, but to do it in love. God doesn't call us to argue with people. When you argue with people, guess who wins? Almost never anyone, because people, it just gets them angry, and they become stronger in their position that they're holding. You share your position, you let them share theirs, and you leave it. If they have more questions, you answer them, and you leave it. You, you don't keep pushing it. We don't need to fight with people. We need to have relationships with people, and we need to let people know that we love them. Reagan had that kind of legacy. You know, there are a lot of people that did not believe in what he did. There are a lot of people that hated him. He wasn't an extremely popular guy. In some ways, there's people on both sides with him. And yet, very people, few people disliked or disrespected him as a person, especially the people that were politicians with him, even the Democrats, because he 
treated them with respect, um, and he was gentle with them, and he was privately disgusted with people who would do otherwise. So it's a good example uh, in terms of how we should be treating one another. Now I have a couple, uh, today I have a, for you a, a couple applications. And the first one is this, that we need to be in the world. It's a question, it's, are you in the world? And here's why I'm asking this question, because in that day and time, they were, you know, everybody was integrated with each other. They, they, they lived so close to each other, they didn't, you know, you didn't, you know, you, you could, didn't take your mule to, to work, you know what I mean? You just, they didn't have the transportation that we have today. So you, everybody worked in the same places. They lived in the same places. They were all very close together. So, for example, originally in Jerusalem, there may have been 25,000 people that regularly lived there, which swelled to large numbers when they had holidays. But there may have been as many as 10,000 Christians or more at that time. So you were hard-pressed not to run into a Christian. And when you did, you would see their interactions with one another and their love for one another, which is why John could later say, they'll know that you're, you're Christians uh, by your love for one another and encourage us to, to love one another. And Jesus will say that. And John, you know, writes a lot of his book, his first letters on that. We, we need to love one another. But people don't see that today. They don't have to because even if you live in a suburban neighborhood, if you are capable of getting the garage clean. Now, that's a big issue um, for some of us. But if it's possible and you can get a car in there and you have a remote control on the garage, you do a, you do a, a drought-resistant yard in the front, nobody never, ever has to see you. You can just spend your time in the house and in the backyard, right? We practically get like that. You work out of the community so you don't see anybody there. You don't have to worry too much about sharing your faith there. It may not be appropriate, right? So then you just come back home and you go to church. And you never have to interact with another human being except the people you want to in your church. And that's a lot how people live their lives. In fact, it's estimated that after just a few months of coming into the Lord, most people just completely cut ties with their non-Christian friends and family, at least for the most part. And it's becoming more and more like that. It, I think the f previous generation has done that more. You know, we, they kind of went on retreat and developed what we now call the Christian subculture. And now it's becoming more and more difficult. So I really sympathize with families that are sending their, you know, deciding where you're going to send your kids to school. And I completely get it why people are, are doing homeschooling and why they're doing Christian schooling. That makes total sense to me. Um, but you've got to keep your kids somehow in connection with other kids, right? And I know people that do both, and that's the goal. Because if you don't, what happens? You have Christian theater, you have Christian sports leagues, you have Christian clubs. You see where I'm going with this? Are any of these things wrong? No, they're all really good. But if you don't have any point of connection with the outside world, how will they know? How will they be able to see our relationship with one another? So this is what we talk about when we talk about oikos. You know, oikos is your household. The, in the ancient world, that's like the 8 to 15 people in your life. I don't care if it's 1 to 5 people. You've got people in your life. The people you live with, your friends, extended family and friends, people in your neighborhood, people you work with, people you go to school with, people on the team, on the band, and the, you know, whatever you do, you've got people in your life. And we need to just identify who they are and build relationships with them and love on them.
This is, again, one of the reasons why we are not a program-driven church. We don't have all sorts of programs. We want you here on Sunday morning, and we really encourage you as much as possible to get into a small group. Um, Our small groups, they don't meet all the... I mean, they're, they're like some meet every other week, and some take summers off, and they're not like you're meeting constantly, but but they're kind of the ember on the fire, you know, the, the coals that you have to lay down to get the fire going. They keep the fire going in your life. We all need those relationships to keep us going. And then we want you, as some people do, to coach football, to coach wrestling. We have people that do that in our church, to work with, uh, against human trafficking, as we have people do with, with, without permission, to, to work with the um, Christian Motorcycle Association that has ministries to motorcycle people. But, you know, just to get involved in your community, to get involved in band, to get on a team or go to theater if you're younger, get to know people, get involved in their lives. And best of all, get them to know your Christian friends and bring them to church so they can see the love that we have for one another and they can see the difference between the Lord's world and the world out there. C.T. Studd was a a very famous missionary, a British missionary uh, to China. And he wrote a poem, and I really like one stanza of it. It's, it's, it's pretty convicting for me. He said this. He said, some love to live within the sound of church and chapel bell. I want to run a rescue ship within the gates of hell. That's what we're supposed to be doing until it's time for us to get to heaven. We're not here to create a heaven on earth. We're here to run rescue ships within the gates of hell. So it's a good thing for us to think about, and I wish we could all kind of capture that passion in our hearts. Now, the second thing is, are you cultivating your relationship with Jesus? Even if it's just 15 minutes a day of of reading your Bible, praying, praying throughout the day, maybe memorizing one verse, keeping Jesus on your heart and in your mind, and, and asking him to show you who you should pray about and who you should talk to. And third, are you prepared? And, and obviously, some of these things, you could just pick one of these things today. There may be just one of these things that you personally could work on. But being prepared means that you know your Bible well and you're listening to other people and you're reading different things, uh, maybe reading more about apologetics or theology or church history because you never really get to the end of it. You just keep wanting to learn more and, and growing in your relationship with God and asking questions when you don't have the answers and, and learning from that. And finally, to be gentle and to be respectful in your relationships with others. What would your boss say if I called him up right now? He'd probably be in bed, right? But uh, no, if I called up, if, you, if I called up your employer, man or woman, what would they say about you? Would they say that you're honest, hardworking, have a good attitude, you don't talk behind people's back, you don't tell dirty jokes, you don't, you know, there's something different about you, you really conduct yourself with honesty and integrity? Would they say that? What would your friends say? Would they say that you're loyal and dependable, you're conscientious, you genuinely care for others, put people before yourself? What would your spouse say? What would your kids say? What would your parents say? What would people say about your behavior? Would people say that you're self-righteous, that you always have to have it your way? Would they say that you stick out your chest and point your finger at people and tell them how they need to get in place, that you get excited when they are put in place? We need to stop posturing and we need to to share the truth, but we need to do it with gentleness and respect. We need to share the truth with love. 
I'm going to tell you my favorite Oikos story today, okay? It's a story about my maternal grandfather, whom I called Gramps. He, um, we were very close. I was very close to my grandparents. I had twin sisters. You guys have heard that before. I think I have identical twin sisters. My mom used to say, I'm glad that I had twins of them. Um, <laughs> but again, I got over it, you know. Um, but I had spent a lot of time with my grandparents until I was 12 years of age. When I was 12 years of age, um, my grandparents moved up to Trinidad, a rustic little fishing community north of Eureka in Humboldt County. And we'd go up there. We wouldn't go there for Christmas anymore, but we'd go there for Thanksgiving to start the holiday season. So I still think of my grandparents at this time of year. When I committed my life to Christ, I couldn't wait to tell my grandparents. I thought my grandmother knew the Lord, and true enough, she did. And it was great to talk with her, but she was concerned about Gramps. So I went and I talked to him and found out that he did not know the Lord. Because we had a good relationship, we could talk. And it seems like even though we didn't plan it spontaneously, we would talk for about an hour or more every time I saw him, when I'd see him about three times a year usually, and then on average about once a year after that, and we'd talk about spiritual things. He was a very, very smart man. Interesting guy. He, was, he had kind of a scientific mind, but when he was younger, uh, he actually was a professional musician, and he was in the big band deal, and then later he became a successful businessman. He was... Um, a personnel director for Hunt's Food. Uh, and I learned recently that he actually came out and started the cannery here. Um, so he, that was my first link to Oakdale as my grandfather helped start what is now um, Conagra. And so he was, he was a very successful businessman. He, had kinda, he could be a tough you know, businessman and negotiator and that kind of thing, but he had a gentleness to him. And we would talk about things for hours and I would learn from him. There were things I realized that I was holding on to that weren't really biblical and things I didn't understand. And so we learned from each other. When my grandmother died, my grandfather softened. And um, that was neat. But then he hardened, and he just clamped down all of a sudden, and he didn't want to talk about it anymore. And I realized that it wasn't going to go any further. I just thanked God for my grandfather. I thought I'm going to enjoy him as long as I have him. And then, you know, he'll go to heaven, and uh, he won't go to heaven, and I won't see him anymore, but I'll enjoy him here on earth. And then my mom made the fateful call. She said, your, your grandfather has bladder surgery. He's too old. They don't want to operate on him. He has eight days to live. So we flew up to see him, and mom and dad said, you're so close to him. Would you go tell him? <laughs> Thanks. You know, Would you go tell him that he's going to die? So I, I went in, and I told him, and it was really hard, but he kind of figured it out. It was hard because he didn't know the Lord. The next morning, I was there when the hospice nurse said to him, Jim, are you looking forward to see Carmen again? Carmen was my grandmother. And he said, um, I don't believe I will. So we started talking, and, and he didn't talk about it, but he talked about a lot of other things. He was a good man. You know, he called up every one of his grandkids, and he, and he called up friends and people he could, every person told him something special about them that he liked. And then he said goodbye. I remember his gardener came in. He gave him a bonus, and he told him how much he appreciated him. And his gardener was sitting there, you know, was, was weeping as he told him. My grandfather was a good man by the world standards. He also confessed some pranks that he had played on me in my youth. And we, uh, we had some good laughs on that. But all of a sudden, on the seventh day, just out of nowhere, he wanted to talk about afterlife again. And we started talking. And he had come to the point where he believed that uh, he, he admitted that he was a sinner in need of salvation. But he could not believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. No human being could do that. 
At that point, my father chimed in and he quoted from Bill Bright's Four Spiritual Laws where he says, there are, just, as there are spiritual laws, just as there are physical laws that govern the physical universe, so are there spiritual laws that govern our relationship with God. And my grandfather perked up and we began to talk about that. We said, you know, you can't prove certain things. You can prove that they happen. You just can't prove scientifically how they happen. That's what a miracle is. Um, but there are two different realms. There is the realm that we see on earth and then there's God's realm. And my grandfather, he got it. It made sense to him. And so he chose to give his life to Jesus Christ. And, and I said, um, I said, can I, uh, can I pray for can you? Will you pray with me? And he was getting weak. He said, you pray and I'll pray silently. So I prayed with him. And then afterwards, I was pretty excited. I spontaneously gave him a kiss on the forehead. And you know, he, he turned around, he, he did this. He put his fingers together and he said, now you and I are together again. So the next morning, next morning, the nurse is with him. And she says, Jim, do you, are you looking forward to seeing Carmen? He said, I sure am. And it was just, it was amazing what had happened over that period of time. So then, later as the day progressed, my grandfather got weaker and weaker. And his last words, this is really cool. The last words I remember him saying to me, he turned to me, and he was having a little bit more difficulty speaking, but he said, you are a wonderful person. And then, you know, he went into a coma, and, and he died. He died eight days from the time they said that he was diagnosed. Eight days later, he had known the Lord for one day. He was 91 years of age. I had witnessed Christ to him for 21 years. But that's what, that's what God does. And so we need to keep praying for those people that he lays on our heart because we never know what his time is for them. You know, I can hardly wait to see my grandfather again. But if what I believe in is all about family and giving and Santa Claus, I have no hope. But if Christmas is really about Christ, then the holidays are not near an end, the end. They're just beginning, and they're going to last for eternity. So let's get as many people to join us in the celebration that we can. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you so much um, for the work that you did in my grandfather's life. And I know he's, maybe he was uh, able to watch what we said today. And I know he's excited about his faith. I thank you that he's with my boy and with my grandma. Look forward to seeing them again. Lord, I thank you for the hope that we have. There are people here that I know are, are thinking right away of people in their lives that they love that are with you and that they'll see again uh, for eternity. Um, in a place that will be real and physical and awesome and all, all that we could imagine. So we pray that we would be bold in our witness, but yet that we would be gentle and kind at the same time. Would you please, Holy Spirit, be the one that would guide each of us in our relationships um, with one another and, um, and with those that don't know Christ and draw us ever closer to you in the process. Pray this in your name. Amen.